Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different from the rest. Last episode, we discussed the history of Christian monasticism. It began with the hermits and desert fathers like Paul of Thebes and St. Anthony, who dwelt alone in the Egyptian wilderness. We learned about the opposition to monasticism from the Arians and how St. Jerome defended monasticism and helped spread it to the Holy Land. We also learned about the innovations of St. Pacomius and St. Benedict, St. Scholastica, and how they transformed monasticism from the isolation of the hermits into a communal lifestyle full of ritual and service. These efforts opened up life of a cloistered devotion, not just to the Bear Grylls wilderness survival types, but also to the widows, the retirees, the nobles, the orphans, and everyone in between. Finally, we learned about St. Benedict's Rule, which was not only a founding document of monasticism, but also a founding document of Western civilization. It laid down how to be a monk, the prayers and rituals you need to do, how to be an abbot, how to work hard, and how to live in a small democratic community. We will discuss the rules of this book further in a moment. But now that you have the history and evolution of monasticism, today we can discuss what it was like to be a medieval monk in Europe. In learning this, I hope you'll see the important contributions that monks and monasticism made to Western civilization, and I also hope you'll get some ideas from monks on how to find peace, happiness, enlightenment, and community in this turbulent world. During the rule of Charlemagne, the rule of St. Benedict spread as the gold standard for monastic living. Almost every monastery abided by its rules to varying degrees of strictness. The Cistercians and Cluniacs, for example, lived modified versions of the rule. So, what was life like under this rule? Well, first off, the monks were expected to follow the implied vows. They never swore themselves to these, but to be a monk, pretty much by definition, you had to live these. The implied vows were that of poverty, which is essentially renouncing your material possessions, as suggested in Matthew 19.21, and chastity, which is essentially never having sexual relations. Because of these implied vows, monks could never marry, and their personal belongings were very meager. Usually, their possessions consisted of a personal pen, a knife, a comb, a handkerchief, and a sewing kit. And that was it. On top of these implied vows, there were three main vows that Benedictines explicitly swore. These were stability, conversion, and obedience. According to St. Martin's Abbey, stability means that the monk pledges lifelong commitment to a particular community. To limit oneself voluntarily to one place with one group of people for the rest of one's life makes a powerful statement. Contentment and fulfillment do not exist in constant change. True happiness cannot necessarily be found anywhere other than in this place and this time. For Benedictines, the vow of stability proclaims rootedness, at-homeness, that this place and this monastic family will endure." Close quote. A consequence of this vow is that monks would very rarely leave their monastery. When they did leave, it was under the abbot's orders, and the monks would be performing a service, such as preaching the gospel, volunteering in the community, helping to build poor orphanages or something like that, or traveling to other monasteries. Second was the vow of conversion. According to Benedict Friend, it's a commitment to acknowledge that God converts us continually and to be open to that process. It commanded monks to open their ears, heart, and mind to the ways that God's voice speaks and moves us all. In practice, this means that the monks would be committed to praying, working, studying, and serving. 
Third was the vow of obedience. This vow is rooted in listening and following through with what is heard. Benedict wrote that everyone in the community needs to listen to one another, for sometimes God speaks through the youngest person in a community. Nevertheless, in the end, monks need to recognize that the abbot was the primary decision maker. For the community to function, everyone needed to listen to the abbot and obey with exactness. Another extra vow that was fairly common was the vow of silence. This forbade monks from speaking in certain rooms of the monastery, such as the church, kitchen, the refectory, or the dormitories. It also discouraged monks from having casual conversations with one another. On top of that, the typical monk was only allowed to talk to other monks. This meant that unless they had a role requiring them to interact with the monastery visitors or the lay people or the oblates, which were the children sent to the monastery for school, or the novices, which were the new monks, uh, the monks would need to be silent around all of these people. As a result, monks and novices developed a system of hand gestures and whistles to communicate with one another. This devotion to silence signaled a spiritual and physical separation from the rest of the world. In addition to these vows, Benedict told the monks and nuns that a balance of prayer, work, study, and renewal, aka leisure, was key to glorifying God. So it wasn't just worship all day. Nevertheless, there was a lot of worship. A typical monk's schedule followed what was prescribed in the Book of Hours, which is a devotional book containing prayers and a schedule. The Book of Hours was so frequently used, it is actually the most commonly found surviving medieval document in Europe. Because of this book, a typical monk at Cluny Abbey in France had their day begin around 2.30 a.m. when they would wake up. Then they'd pray the matins and the louds, which were prayers that they were supposed to pray from between 3 to 5 a.m. Senior monks would go around to make sure that the um, junior monks didn't fall asleep during their prayers. After that, the monks would study religious texts from 5 to 6 a.m. And then came the dawn prayers, which are called the prime. They came at 6 a.m., followed by another study at 7.30 a.m. At 8 a.m. was the morning prayers, the terce, and church services. That would last around two hours, and then the monks would go to work. The motto of the Benedictines, after all, was ora et labora, which is pray and work. One of Benedict's most famous and long-lasting teachings was that work brings dignity to each human soul. In the early Middle Ages, this work usually consisted of manual labor out in the fields, but it eventually grew accepted for monks to pursue more scholarly endeavors. Thus, in the later Middle Ages, monks could be engaged in the work of writing, binding, and copying books. This was a valuable service since most of the medieval histories and texts that we have today were works that monks painstakingly wrote and preserved. One of these was written by an Irish monk, Johannes de Sacrobosco, who wrote the authoritative medieval astronomy text, and he was the one who introduced Arabic numerals into the university curriculum of Europe. As abbeys became houses of books, they soon became homes of great scholars and learning. And one of the most important services that they began to provide was teaching the oblates. As I mentioned earlier, oblates were the children who were abandoned or poor, but through living and studying in the monastery, oblates could receive an education in writing, arithmetic, and Latin. This would open up lucrative careers to them, not just in the church, but also in law and in medicine. Anyway, because of the hours of free labor that the monks provided every day, 
monasteries eventually grew extremely wealthy. The benefits of this were that some monasteries were able to acquire lots of land, and with this land they were able to produce massive amounts of food. Most of the food they sold to the local town. Monks were employed as cheesemakers, brewers, ranchers, and butchers, and so they had lots of nourishing food to offer. And so, large monasteries soon became a farmer's market to the town. The townsfolk often held their monks in high regard, or lived on lands owned by the monks, and as a result, it was pretty common for them to donate food or drinks to the monks to enjoy. An advantage of all this food coming in was that the monks never had to worry about starvation, which was fairly unique for someone living in the medieval times. Just look at Claudio Rinaldi's famous painting of the four monks. Those guys were very well fed. In the summer, monks would eat two meals a day, and in the winter, they would eat one. And it was one heck of a meal. Depending on the monastery, you could expect bread, fish, seafood, vegetables, fruit, eggs, cheese, pork, rabbit, hare, chicken, or quail, along with plenty of wine and ale. Between eating, the monks could, they could not forget to offer their sext prayers at noon, and their nones prayers at three. After the meal, the monks would go back to their work for a few hours until 4.15 p.m. when it was time for the Vespers afternoon prayers. The last prayer of the day, the Compline, was offered around six, after which monks usually just went to bed. It's a pretty early bedtime if you ask me, but they probably saved a lot of money on candles by having everyone go to sleep at sunset. And besides, they needed to wake up at 2.30 a.m. to start the day all over again. Despite this schedule packed with work and worship, Benedict still encouraged his monks to take time for renewal and many monks found various ways to unwind. Unable to leave their ground for their, of their monasteries, they had to find clever ways to have fun indoors or among their lawns and gardens. Monks in 12th century France actually created a rather intense sport that was played on these grass lawns. All they needed was a ball and the palms of their hands. They would swat the ball across the field trying to get the ball past each other. They called this game Géo de Pomme, or Game of the Palm. When one monk would score a point, the opponent would shout tenis, which is the French imperative for take, meaning take the point. From the monks, the game would spread to the French royalty until eventually there were 250 palm courts in Paris. From there, the Italians would adopt it, and they created special gloves with bouncing strings made of taut animal guts to help the ball bounce farther. Eventually, these stopped being gloves and turned into rackets, and no longer was the game called Palm, but rather Tennis. Other monks pursued arts, science, and language. Hildegard of Bingen was a Benedictine nun in the 1100s, famous for her visionary works. And she was a good example of all these types of hobbies. She pursued the arts, sciences, and languages for fun. She learned musical notation and wrote 69 musical pieces that still can be played and sung today. She also even wrote a musical. It is the earliest known surviving musical not attached to a liturgy, and it was performed at her monastery for the nuns and noblewomen of the community. Her scientific work includes the Physica, which is nine books that discuss the medicinal properties of various plants, stones, fishes, reptiles, and animals. This work was the first reference that discussed using hops and beer as a preservative. She also wrote The Causae et Curae, an exploration of the human body and the causes and cures of various diseases. 
Lastly, her love of linguistics led her to come up with her own secret language with hundreds of unique invented words. I would be remiss not to mention in this conversation Gregor Mendel. Mendel was a 19th century monk in Austria. Born in poverty, he joined the monastery as a young oblate to receive a free education. He soon became a very learned man. Eventually, he was sent to study physics at the University of Vienna, where he learned under the tutelage of Christian Doppler. After his education, he joined the St. Thomas Abbey's faculty, and he eventually became abbot. Mendel had a passion for science, particularly in the inheritance of desirable traits. He began his studies on mice, but his bishop didn't like him studying animals having sex, so Mendel switched to plants. At the abbey, they devoted five acres of land to an experimental garden where Mendel studied peas and hawkweed. There he established the rules of hereditary, known now as the laws of Mendelian inheritance, laying the foundation for modern genetics. Mendel had other hobbies too, astronomy, meteorology, he was actually the founder of the Austrian Meteorological Society, and apiculture. In fact, he loved his bees so much that craftsmen in the abbey built for him beehives of his own design. He called the bees, my dearest little animals. Mendel apparently was the only one in the abbey who loved the bees, and other monks and visitors often complained that these bees were very aggressive and annoying. They asked him to remove them on many occasions, but he never obliged. And these two polymaths are just two of the many examples of the brilliant monks and nuns who made important contributions and discoveries in their spare time at the monasteries. In the 17th century, Jean Mabillon became the inventor of a new field of study for historic writings known as paleography. In the 19th century, Maria Gattina Agnesi became the first female mathematics professor and author of the first book discussing both differential and integral calculus. She retired as a nun and devoted the rest of her spare time to serving the poor, homeless, and sick. In the 19th century, a Scottish monk named Andrew Gordon invented the first electric motor. Also in the 19th century, in the same town where Benedict anciently lived and worked, a monk named Serafino Serrate invented the steamboat. In the 20th century, an English monk named Carl Carroll became the world's leading expert on bees and created the Buckfast Bee, named for his home, Buckfast Abbey. And so, I'm sure you're beginning to see how these medieval abbeys were places not only of strict rules and solitude, but also places of incredible service, study, and discovery. They elevated the communities where they were located, and many of them elevated humanity with their efforts to teach, preserve, and experiment. Not just that, the monasteries provided homes, education, and food to the poor and abandoned, the widows and the orphans. Though I would never want to live as a monk, I enjoy being a husband and a father far too much, I still think there's a lot of wisdom and value in the commitments they made and the priorities that they had. And so that concludes our episode for today. Thanks so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share this with a friend. For more information on this topic, check out the sources listed in the description. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you. <laughs>